everyone and welcome back to Amy Talks. In this episode, I speak to former alcoholic and author Lisa Boucher about her journey to recovery, the problems facing both sides of the pond in terms of easy access to alcohol, how drinking is glamorised and what parents can do to prevent their children having alcohol problems in future. So for the good news story today, it's actually quite a funny one. Uh, I got it from the site oddie.com, O-double-D-double-E. The headline is, Man stands in Dallas Dog Park covered in peanut butter, simply because he lost a bet, which is rather extreme, but I will explain. This guy uh, lost a bet, so he had to cover himself in peanut butter and stand in a dog park. And if you don't own dogs or don't know, dogs love peanut butter, and they obviously loved him as well. Because he had it, had it all over him. Uh, it says when he was last at the Fantasy Football League, he had to cover himself from head to toe in peanut butter and go and stand in this park. Uh, his name's Stephen Shrout. He decided that last year was the year he would start playing fantasy football. I don't know what it is, so if anyone does know, educate me, because I don't know what it is. His high school friends have been playing on a league since 2009, and he wanted to join as well. He said it was my first year, so I didn't really do any sort of studying. Apparently, you have to study for that, or like at least have some tactics. I don't know. It was kind of bad luck off the bat, really, because uh, his... Um, top pick, I suppose, uh, ended up sitting out the entire season. So, uh, from the start, his his friends gave him a choice. He said he they said he could either pay two hundred and fifty dollars to the winning person, or he could carry out a humiliating stunt. He chose the stunt, um, <laughs> which was to wear only a gold speedo and otherwise be covered in peanut butter and stand at a dog park. I said, that's not a big challenge. No one believed me. They're like, no way is he going to do it. But he did do it. And he said, my strategy was to do it as fast as possible and hope that not many people would see me. A lot of the dog owners just wondered what I was doing. And then when I said they lost a bet, I lost a bet, they all laughed. If I was at that dog park, I would laugh as well because it's quite funny. Of course, there's a video about it and it went viral. He has definitely learned his valuable, uh, his lesson and he said at the end, I will play fantasy football again, but probably not with the same guys. Um, so there's a little funny story to brighten your day. I will also put this in the description of the episode as well, so you can go and read it and have a bit of a laugh. So I'm here with Lisa. Hi, wel- Hi welcome to the show. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for having me. No problem. Alcohol is a sensitive issue as it's socially acceptable yet can be addictive with people, especially I'm I'm one to do this myself, have the old drink to score, to cure stress or a long week, but it can also escalate as well. So how do you think kind of alcoholism manifests itself? Well, I think any time we practice something, we, or we can get good at it or we can fail at it. And that's sort of what happens, I think, with the drinking. I know my drinking, and like all alcoholism, it's progressive. So most mm. people, I mean, some people do start out of the gate and they say they drank alcoholically from the first time they drank as a child. But I think for most of us, it sneaks up on us and mm. we start, like you were saying, you come home from work and you just pour a glass of wine to relax and pretty soon it turns into two glasses, maybe the, you know, months later, three, and you're on your way down that slippery slope into what can be alcohol abuse and then turn into alcoholism. 
Mm-hmm. I guess part of the problem is that in the UK, drinks are kind of readily accessible in like supermarkets or grocery stores, as you would call them, as you can go in and sort of buy over the counter. Do you think the US is, is following suit? I know they're hard on hard on having uh, like age appropriate ID, so that's a good thing, I suppose. But um, do you think it's going to be more accessible to to Americans as well? Well, it is accessible. I mean, that the whole we they're supposed to card, and you're supposed to be 21. But the reality here's what started to slip in is like nail salons are starting to have wine and I know one mother was in there with her 17 year old daughter and they just handed her a glass of wine they didn't even ask if she was of age yeah I mean now they can probably lose their license that's really yeah it really is I mean because they we've introduced it here you can buy it just about anywhere and then they've also introduced it to places that didn't normally have alcohol Mm. like when you go to yoga or the art museum was doing um uh, painting and wine or um you go you know we have festivals like i'm sure you guys do and there's alcohol everywhere oh yeah so it is everywhere at the grocery at you know carry outs um you name it, it's there, and it's mm. getting worse where, you know, they're having it at places, like I just said, that normally you would never at dress shops. You didn't used to walk in a dress shop and be able to drink, but now they do at some of them. Mm. Not all of them, but some of them. So it, it's a problem here as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that you can go into places and, and drink. You know, I know over in the UK as well, we, we have um, kind of hair salons where you can you can drink a glass of champagne or whatever whilst you're getting your hair done, which is kind of, if, if you make made an appointment in the middle of the day, it's kind of almost enabling that sense of kind of, oh, you know, I'll have a drink at 2pm tomorrow or something like that. Oh, it does, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was talking with someone the other day and we were talking about how it's almost, if you, if you decline a drink, your attack, yeah. as yeah. opposed to, you know, everybody wants to know what's wrong with you. Why aren't you drinking? And I feel like podcasts such as yours and others, we need to start speaking out and yeah. saying emotionally adults, you know, emotionally healthy adults should not have to explain why they're making a good choice. Mm-hmm. And so if you're someone who's uncomfortable with someone else's who is not drinking, I think that says a whole lot more about you than it does them. Mm, Because most people, you know what I'm saying? They're like, they're uncomfortable because you're not drinking at noon with them. Well, maybe you have kids to pick up from Mm. uh, soccer practice or you you have obligations. Mm. So there's a lot of great reasons not to be drinking in the middle of the day. Yeah, And for people to you know, press yeah. others is, is crazy. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of pressure, particularly around social drinking, um, as a lot of people go out, you know, maybe at lunchtime or whatever and have a have a drink. But if you're not drinking, they'll th- they'll say, oh, you know, why, why don't you just have one? You'll be fine. And then, like, you have, you risk, if, you, if you're driving, getting arrested or, you know, whatever. So it's def- there's definitely a lot of pressure on people to, to drink when either they don't or they don't or they they're limited like they can't for example like you said they're going to pick their kids right right i mean i think people 
people need to feel okay saying no. No is a complete sentence. We're allowed to say no to things, you know, and not have to go along just because everyone else is doing that. Mm. I mean, it's almost like that's what happens. Teenagers do that sort of thing. They go along with the crowd. Mm. So why are we encouraging adults to do that instead of standing up and doing what's best for them? Mm. Yeah. We were just talking about social situations, but there is also a rise in drinking at home as well. So do you think that's kind of environmental factors like um, stress and anxiety or like political events and seeing the news 24-7? Like, What do you think has triggered the rise in, in drinking at, at home? I think there's a, a, it, it's complicated. I think there's people who, you know, they're, they're dissatisfied in their jobs. They're mm-hmm. dissatisfied in their relationships. They have childhood trauma that has never been healed. Mm. They have, you know, emotional baggage that they've never addressed. So that right there, I think, fuels drinking. And someone, you know, if they have a job they hate, so maybe they're drinking now because they just can't stand this job instead of getting another job. Or maybe they're not in a position where they can just up and get another job. So I think it's become everyone's way to cope and it's like they look forward to the drinking to have that escape Mm. as opposed to looking at the emotional piece of it and saying what's going on with me what have I not worked through and a lot of this goes back like I said to our childhoods I mean Mm. I had a very it was traumatic in a lot of ways I was raised with an alcoholic mother there was a lot of insanity and craziness in our house, my father was angry and raging and could be physically abusive at times. Mm. And so when you get a beer, you realize, oh, that's, you know, that aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it takes the edge off. Yeah. And there you go. That's how a lot of people start into addiction. It's just to escape this flood of emotional feelings that they just don't have the skills to cope with in a healthy mm. way. Mm. Yeah, I definitely agree. And there's very much a drinking culture both in the UK and in the US under underage drinking is really becoming a problem um I don't think that prohibition is a solution because people would just make their own so what do you think what do you think needs to be done to stop people becoming alcoholics later in life if they're kind of starting out young and do you think the kind of culture of it is very glamorized like you say at festivals and hair salons and things like that well, it's extremely glamorized. And, the, you know, I'm on the Alcohol Coalition here in our city. And so we were talking about this, and they want to do all these programs to target the kids and educate the kids. And I keep saying, whoa, there is, you know, I think that's a piece of the puzzle. Mm. But we have to educate the parents yeah. because so many of these kids start drinking. I can give you a couple examples. I know when my sons were young, there were some families that, I mean, they're nice people. I like them, but I was not comfortable with what was going on in their homes. And so these parents all drank heavily. They were always, you know, sitting around on their decks and patios and whatnot, drinking, drinking, while the kids, when they were young, were in the other room and stole their own alcohol from the parent and were drinking. So this is how alcoholism starts very early for a lot of kids because of the accessibility to booze in the home. Mm, So I don't think we can just 
address children and say, you know, teach them don't drink. We can talk to them all we yeah. want in school and whatnot, but if they go home to a very party atmosphere yeah. with their parents when they get home, those kids have a very high risk. And it's um, statistically, children are four times more likely, four to seven times more likely to become alcoholic when they have early sips of parents' alcohol. Mm, yeah. So parents need to stop letting their kids have a drink of their cocktail. Yeah. And I think parents need to role model some other behaviors besides just drinking in front of the children mm -hmm. constantly. You know, back in the day when my mother was an alcoholic, but they didn't drink like people do now in front of us. You know, they did occasionally when they had friends over to play cards or whatever, but it was not a lot of alcohol where now you go into homes and there's just wine cases and wine cellars and yeah. the kitchen counter is littered with alcohol. So what are these children seeing? Yeah. What are they seeing? You need to educate the whole family. Right? Yeah, exactly. It has to be a family education. It has mm. to start with the parents. I, I think a lot of it is if just parents would be more aware of what they are role modeling. Of the effects of what they're showing. these things do yeah. matter. Yeah. Right. I mean, if our children don't know any other way, why do we think they're going to do different? Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. You worked as a nurse for 24 years and then realised that there wasn't any effective treatment for women with addiction issues. So what do you think needs to change? Well, I think the doctors need to get better educated absolutely about mm. addiction because I see it, you know, I, I still work a couple of days at the hospital and it's really disheartening. Um, I know in my book I talk about what happened to my mother back in the 60s. Her addiction started with benzos, escalated to alcohol. She went into the hospital numerous times to the psych ward, saw therapists, saw psychiatrists, went to all these places, and nobody nobody could help her because they kept misdiagnosing her with bipolar, manic depression, depression, anxiety. And so what I'm seeing in my nursing career for the past 25 years now is the exact same thing. Hmm. The doctors continue to misdiagnose and medicate as opposed to looking at the underlying substance abuse. And most 80% of the people that are rolling through the doors at the psych ward have substance abuse problems. Hmm. But what happens, you know, you get um, some more of the dramatic um, examples are people that have been on a cocaine or meth binge for four days. And they come into the hospital and they're hallucinating and the doctors say, Oh, they're psychotic, and they put them on an antipsychotic. I mean, it just blows my mind. It's mm. so damaging. These people need to be referred to rehab. They need to be educated on addiction. The doctors don't seem to have a will to learn. You know, there's a hubris there that I'm a doctor. You didn't go to medical school. What can you know? Mm. And I see that attitude over and over. And like I said, what happened? with my mother back in the 60s is the same thing that's happening. So have we really come that far, far in yeah. our medical care with women? No. And with people in addiction? No. It's it's just shameful. And then the big push is to just, you know, prescribe Suboxone and whatnot for the opiate addicts. And yeah. so it's like they, they created this big 
problem with pharmacology, and now they want to solve the problem with more pharmacology. Mm-hmm. And I think the drug and alcohol industries are just loving how everyone is drinking and using because they're making mm-hmm. billions yeah. of dollars yeah. on human misery. And it's just, it's devastating to so many people, so many families, and until we get the doctors on board with it, but there is a real pushback. They just don't really want to learn, I don't mm-hmm. think. And, and I was talking to a medical uh, resident. She's just going to start her residency, and I asked her, um, you know, are, what are they teaching you guys in school about addiction? And she said nothing. Nothing. Now that's that's shameful. That's, that's shameful. This is. Yeah. I mean, yeah, she's going to graduate here in May, so this is a very new. She said there are optional seminars that they can elect to take, but it's not a mandatory class. It should be. And mandatory. I think that right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, why are medical schools not focusing on this? And the other thing that I I just find really disheartening is I do believe the real experts in addiction are the people who have been through it and recovered successfully. They have a lot to add to the discussion in addition to the scientists studying. And, you know, that is obviously valuable research and all that. But I think they need to, to, uh, and I'm speaking of physicians, they need to listen more. I mean, I would love for a room full of physicians to get in a room full of recovering addicts and let these addicts tell them, how they manipulate doctors, because they do. And I've talked to many, many. You know, they do. And this is just part of it. But these doctors don't want to hear the Mm. truth. So therefore, if they're not hearing the truth, they're not going to change their practices. No. As you said um, earlier, doctors uh, misdiagnose alcoholism. So what do you think are the signs that someone's drinking is maybe getting a bit out of control and they might need a bit of help? Um, my big focus, and especially what I wrote about in Raising the Bottom, is that we don't have to hit these low bottoms. So I think the focus needs to be on awareness, like we're doing now, talking about it. You put your podcast out there, and hopefully people will, you know, so the education that you don't have to end up on the 6 o'clock news to qualify as an alcoholic. You don't mm. have to drink every day to be an alcoholic. I didn't drink every day. Um, the early warning signs are how is it impacting your relationships? I mean, alcoholism manifests very early in relationships, people that have problems in all of their relationships. You know, they're on their third marriage or they can't get along with anybody at work or they struggle with interpersonal with friends. Mm-hmm. A lot of times addiction is behind that very juvenile behavior. You know, they say we quit growing when we picked up a drink. So if you're 15 when you start drinking and you continue to drink heavily, by the time you're 25, 30, emotionally, you're still 15. Mm, So we see this play out in a lot of relationships where people are very immature um, and they just can't handle anything. So the inability, my alcoholism also manifested by the inability to really follow through and finish things that were important to do, like finish school and whatnot. Mm. I was I was in my undergrad degree for 10 years, you know, and then I got sober and I finished two degrees. So things like that, or, mm. or parents that have children that just won't launch 
and get out of the house and get on with their lives, the yeah. first thing they should do is look at, is there some substance abuse here? Mm. And quit blaming everything on, oh, they're depressed. Well, I'm going to say they're probably depressed because they're drinking every night <laughs> and they're playing video yeah. games or they're mm. not. You know what I'm saying? Lifestyle choices that we make contribute to depression, anxiety, and drinking. Mm. So I think we should always look there first before yeah. slapping diagnosis on people and medicating them. Mm. Well, as you uh, said at the beginning of that answer, you uh, wrote a book called Raising the Bottom, Making Mindful Choices in a Drinking Culture, um, where lots of people shared their experiences. As we've, we've mentioned throughout the interview, uh, drinking culture is kind of very much true. Uh, so what do you want the reader to take away from the book? The, the book points out that, like I was just saying, you don't have to hit low bottoms. If you understood what alcoholism looked like, could you identify and catch it in yourself sooner? Because alcoholism is the only disease that is truly self-diagnosed. Somebody else telling you you have a drinking problem isn't, you know, doesn't make people mm. stop drinking. So I chose to focus in the book on people that were very high bottom, physicians, nurses, teachers, moms, people that from the outside, everything, all the props were Every, in place. Everything looked perfect. Exactly. Yeah. And no, not necessarily perfect, but they look like anybody yeah. you'd see yeah. walking down the street, going to the store, you know, going to the doctor and things like that. And these people were disintegrating internally. Their lives were falling apart. But because they had the house and the car and the job, they said, well, I can't be an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And so raising the bottom very much focuses on, yes, you could be. 80% of alcoholics have families and have jobs. They're not the homeless people on the street. And people tend to think unless mm. they're walking around with a bottle and a paper bag, that's, they don't qualify. That's something that I think a lot of people have a misconception of and something that I want to kind of raise awareness of is that, you know, not all alcoholics, as you say, are homeless people on the street. Like, they're anyone like you and me, but they could be suffering, right? su- suffering with, a, with a drinking yeah. problem that nobody knows about. Well, there's a lot of, you know, high-powered executives that mm. come home, go to work, and they're running, you know, multi-million dollar companies, and they come home, and they drink until they go to sleep, and then they wake up and do it all over. There are many, many, many people like that, that, mm. you know, I was working with a woman, she can't, she can't seem to stay sober, she's got a boyfriend who's very enabling, but she works every day, she comes home, and she drinks, you know, mm. all night, so... These are things that a lot of people do, and instead of saying, well, that's a social drinker, that's not social, you know. So I think we need to quit saying if we're drinking every day and we're passing out at night or things like that, that that we're social drinkers because there's nothing social about that kind of drinking, you know. And then I also, in the book, I wanted to, because this is where we cultivate addiction for the future generations is what I was speaking about is children that grow up in these homes, even though all looks well, their emotional needs are not being met when mom, dad, two moms, two dads, whatever, are focused on cocktail hour. Mm. So the children, I mean, we all know we change after a few drinks. So after a few drinks, you know, you're no longer really present. You're not in tune. Mm. 
And so I did a whole chapter to what your kids say about you and your drinking. Mm. And I think it was really important. I had two of the doctors that were alcoholics that had no idea they were alcoholics till they got into recovery. What does that tell you about our health care? And their daughters wrote letters about how they felt about their mom going to work, coming home, and drinking wine while she cooked dinner. Mm. Because if she kept drinking the wine, she became someone they no longer respected or wanted to be around. Yeah. She became silly or her behavior changed. So I thought that was really important that I mm. put that in there because if we really want to address addiction, we cannot leave the children out of the equation. Mm. And I think there's so much focus on the addict and alcoholic that we forget about the kids. Yeah. And they will become addicts and alcoholics if their emotional needs are not met as children and if they are not given the skills, the coping skills and tools to navigate life without the crutch of alcohol. Mm. But if this is all the parents are teaching them, you can almost, I can predict very well what families are going to have kids that grow up to be um, addicts or alcoholics. And I, I'm, I'm astonished at my accuracy rate is stunning. Mm. I mean, because you can see it You when you look at the family environment, you look at the child, and you can see it. And it's just, you know, I mean, I know the disease extremely well because growing up with it, being in recovery myself, I've been sober 29 years. I have been around alcoholics and alcoholism my entire life. Mm. So I've gotten very, very good at picking up on the nuances. Mm. So my final question is, do you have any advice for those who think maybe themselves or someone they know is potentially struggling with alcohol issues or alcohol addiction? Well, what worked for me was the 12 steps. And mm. I think people, you know, people have a hard time jumping into recovery. But if you're on the fence or you're questioning your drinking at all, that's a really good sign you do have a problem. Because, I, you know, most people don't wonder if they drink too much unless they actually drink too much. So that's the first step. I know mm -hmm. there's a lot of podcast information out there. Yeah. You can start educating yourself, reading. There's a lot of Facebook pages that have to do with, you know, recovery. So you can kind of just be a stalker if you just want to learn a little bit. Mm. And then, like I said, um, 12 steps. I, I really like that route or any route that doesn't involve a physician medicating someone. Mm. Um, you know, I'm just very against that. I, I've seen it lead to just too many problems. So, um, the, like I said, 12 steps works. If you don't like that option, I know over here we have smart recovery. They have some other things that I'm not really familiar with, so I don't feel I can speak about them. But I know there are, you know, other things that people yeah. have done. And just seek them out, whatever resonates with you. And if you're someone who's drinking heavily, you, you may need medical detox. I do want to throw that in there because... Um, depending on where you are in your disease, but if you're getting the shakes and all that, you really should see a doctor yeah. because alcohol withdrawal can be deadly. So you do need to come down with Librium or Valium or something. So, mm. you know, but if you're someone who's just like kind of like I was, where I was still functioning and physically I was not really affected by it, but mentally and emotionally, the alcohol just – 
was destroying my life, um, I just went, well, I went home to my mom because she was seven years sober at the time. And then I kind of got my sea legs and then I came back to the city where I live and I just started going to meetings and I've mm. been doing that for, it'll be 30 years in June. So it's working. Congratulations. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, so yeah. that's all the questions I have for you today. Um, thank you for uh, joining me. Amy, thank you for having me. I appreciate no it. No problem. It's a pleasure talking with you. And you. Thank you, dear. Bye-bye. Bye. That's all for this episode. Thank you very much to Lisa for taking part in my interview. If you wish to go and follow her or see any more information about her, her website is raisingthebottom.com. She's also found on Twitter at albushaauthor. And uh, if you go on her website, it will show you all of her social media channels, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of that, all of that stuff. If you want to follow me and keep up with what the show's doing, uh, you can do so on Twitter and Facebook. I'm at Amy Talks Podcast. You can also follow the show on uh, Spotify, Stitcher, and iTunes. Just search whatever medium you want to um, want to listen to it on, and with Amy Talks, and I'm sure the link will come up. If not, it will be in the line of the description of uh, each episode, so you can go and listen to it on whatever platform you want to. Um, I'm also on Mixcloud as well, so uh, if you're a creator on there or, or kind of follow people with content on there, it would be uh, great if you could follow me and listen there too. Until next time, bye!